Father, thank you for these truths that we have sung about, our future glory with you. Thank you that that was all brought about and will be brought about because your son, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief, willingly did your will and went to the cross and bore our sins in his body on the cross. And he died for us and rose from the dead. We thank you so much. And Father, I pray that as we look into your word today, you would grant us wisdom and understanding concerning exactly what you want us to know, what you intended when you revealed this through Paul initially, but by your spirit for us to apply it rightly to our lives now. We thank you for this time. We commit it to you now. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, there are basically two types of people in the world. There are those who have a genuine hope for what will happen after this life, and those who do not. The Apostle Paul shares in Ephesians uh, that the Ephesian church, before they came to Christ, they were having no hope and without God in the world. And if you're honest with yourselves, you'll realize if you don't know Christ, you really have no genuine, no genuine hope. You have no genuine hope concerning what would happen after the grave. For those of you who don't know Christ, if you've ever lost a loved one, you understand what I'm talking about. In your heart of hearts, you don't know if you will ever, ever see them again. There's a hopelessness. The reality is that person that you loved is dead, and you no longer have contact with them. Now, we believers are not like those without Christ, and we have good reason to have a genuine hope, as we're going to see today. But yet, we should be excelling even more in our hope as believers. So with that in mind, would you turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and we're going to be looking at verses 13 to 18, in which we're going to see how we can excel still more, abound more and more in true, genuine hope, as we understand really the realities about what we have in Christ for the future. Let me share some context. The Apostle Paul is writing a young church Uh, less than a year old in the faith. He has been orphaned from them, but he has learned through Timothy of their spiritual condition, and he is joyful and thankful. And after sharing his thankfulness for their salvation, the response to the word, he shares uh, his concerns through Timothy about their faith. And then we came to the portion of this book where he begins to shift gears and give instruction for us and for them and for us in chapter 4. He began to exhort them how to walk in, how to walk rightly in their walk with Jesus Christ. Indeed, we saw the Apostle Paul begin to address the practical issues, the practical issues of our walk with Christ, that they were to be walking in a manner that pleased God, to remember his previous instructions so that they would excel still more. And as I mentioned, verses 1 through 3, I mentioned the last time we were together, this portion really frames the whole book. Paul is commanding and instructing these Thessalonians with the full authority of the Lord God. Let's go back and look at chapter 4, verse 1. Chapter 4, verse 1. Finally then, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you have received from us instruction how you ought to walk and please God, just as you actually do walk, that you excel still more. For you know what commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. As he re- and then we see here, notice in chapter 4, verse 3, that he revealed that God's will for these Thessalonians is their sanctification, and thus that is God's will for us, our sanctification. To be set apart from sin unto the Lord, conformed to the image of his Son. And then grammatically, the rest of this book really flows off of this idea of sanctification, the will of God in our 
walk. Now, the first area in which Paul addressed concerning sanctification was sexual purity, and we saw that we are to abstain, we are not to be involved in sexual immorality. We are to keep applying biblical instruction uh, regarding sexual purity and abstain. We are to know how to possess our own vessels righteously, but we need to be warned of the implications if we do not. And we understand that if we don't accept these things, we are rejecting the God who gives us his spirit. He gives us his spirit that we are enabled then to do what he calls us to do. And then we saw last week we are to excel in our love for one another. And he gave some interesting areas in which we are to excel in our love for one another. Areas that we need to stop which will enable us to love even more one another. We are to stop, uh, uh, in a sense, uh, the verbiage that causes uh, difficulty and strife within a body, the body of Christ. We are to lead a quiet life. We are to stop getting into other people's business and mind our own business. And we are to stop the uh, realities of not doing what we're supposed to do. That's a double negative, but you know what I mean, right? (laughs) If you're supposed to work, you need to work because not working is unloving towards the body of Christ. So we had three unique areas that needed to be addressed that would help us excel still more in our love for the body of Christ. And then with that in mind, Paul springboards into the very next area in which we are to excel still more, which is genuine hope. So let's read our passage, uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord shall not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. And folks, these are comforting words. These are encouraging words. What we just read and what we'll see today is a detailed explanation of what is on the horizon for us as believers in light of the grave. So how can we excel still more in genuine hope? Well, notice, first of all, Paul's going to make the point that we are not to be ignorant of biblical truth. You see, when we are hopeless, it's because sin has gotten in the way or we do not understand and thus believe the truth what God has revealed, which actually brings us hope. Think about it, an illustration, you're concerned about your child, you don't know anything, but then you hear something about them, you, that truth about what's happening gives you hope that they're okay in a sense. Well, in the same way, when we hear the truth from what God says about us, it gives us assurance and hope concerning what is going to happen in the future. So we're not to be ignorant. Look at verse 13, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as the rest who have no hope. Now we know from our previous study in this book, to the credit of the Thessalonians, they were diligently looking forward to the coming of Jesus Christ. Look back in chapter 1, verse 8. For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. Your faith towards God has gone forth so that we have no need to say anything. For they themselves report about what kind of reception we had with you and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God. And notice this, and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. It had only been about 20 years since Jesus had died and risen from the dead. And this church was an idol, was, was an, 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 a pagan group of idolaters who, who turned from their idols to God and now believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And part of that faith, they understood that he was coming for them. They were waiting for the Lord Jesus. We also know in Paul's exhortations and commands in verse 12 and then 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 that there were some issues. We'll see it in verse 12 where we saw it last week in verse 12, chapter 4. And then in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 that there were some issues that these Thessalonians were waiting for Christ but they had become imbalanced in their understanding and some had quit their jobs because they thought Christ is coming. So they were so focused on that they were ignoring other truths that they needed to obey. And it's also apparent from our passage that because of biblical ignorance, some of these Thessalonians had become distraught, had become distraught concerning loved ones who had died before Jesus had come. Remember, this church is only less than a year old in the faith, and they had some loved ones, as we'll see, who had already passed away, who had come to faith in Jesus Christ. So at this, this is the platform that the Apostle Paul is going to address this conception, this concept of genuine hope. So notice he begins with a coordinating conjunction. Look at this. But, verse 13, we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren. Now it's unfortunate if you have an NIV translation, they don't translate that but there. Why so? Why is this important? Because this conjunction actually coordinates and contrasts what he's been speaking of. And what has he just shared? He has just told them the reason why they are to love each other because, and to behave properly because, or so that they would behave appropriately towards outsiders and not be in any need. They were to excel in their love because their testimony was visible to those outside the church and it was a burden on those within the church. And so from that he moves. But in light of that, in light of that, we do not want you to be uninformed. So evidently the reality of them being uninformed about Christ and grieving as we'll see like non-believers, their testimony was in a sense at risk. You see, if you have a believer who believes in Jesus Christ and they're grieving just like someone who doesn't know Christ, what kind of testimony is that? What kind of testimony is that regarding what's beyond the grave? And so he says, but we do not want you or literally desire you to be ignorant. We do not desire you to be ignorant, brethren. These are believers. And this passage is to believers. Very important. What is said in this passage is not to those who have not come to Christ. It is for believers. Brethren, they are those who have turned from idols to serve a one to God. Turn to God from idols. They believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. They have been saved by faith in Jesus Christ. They are brothers and sisters in Christ who have had their sins covered, their sins forgiven through the blood of Jesus. So he says, we do not want you or desire that you be uninformed. The term uninformed, agnaeo, speaks of to be ignorant, to not know or to fail to understand. Remember, they were only a year old in the faith. And Paul is saying, you need to know this. You are not to be ignorant about this truth. Now, what is it he desires them not to be ignorant about specifically? He says, about or literally concerning... Middle of verse, or end of verse 13, those who are asleep. Now, initially you go, wait a second, uh, they're concerned about, uh, about Uncle George who's taking a nap? What's he talking about? Who are those who are asleep? Well, the term asleep speaks of basically sleep, inactivity of the body. That's what it means in its basic form. But, and it, but it's used to describe a believer who has died. End of verse 14, those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. Down in verse 16, the dead in Christ, they have died. They have died. Sleep is a figure in the New Testament to describe death of the physical body of believers. Of believers, very important. It's a euphemism. It points to the reality that when a believer's body goes in the grave, it's not going to be there forever. It's going to wake up in a sense, right? It's going to be raised. Just like when we go to sleep, we eventually wake up. It's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a, something to describe something. 
Turn to John, well, you don't have to turn it, I'll read it. John chapter 11, this is concerning Lazarus who, who was sick and the Lord delayed, so then he died. And this is John chapter 11, verse 11. Then he, that's speaking of Jesus, said, said, and after he said to them, this he said, and after he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep. But I go that I may awaken him out of sleep. The disciples therefore said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he's going to recover. They didn't get it, right? Hey, if he's just dozed off, he's going to recover. Now, Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he was speaking of literal sleep. Jesus is not speaking of literal sleep, just like Paul is not speaking of literal sleep. Then Jesus therefore said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. But he is using the term sleeper because he's going to awaken him from the dead. And the same thing, Paul uses it here, the reality that when we die as believers, we are going to be, our bodies at least, we'll see, we'll see the separation, but our bodies will be awakened. It's not a permanent thing in a sense. It's not a permanent thing as we'll see, and it's actually a glorious thing as we'll see. Now before we continue, I want to share some scriptures about death, because here, that's what he's talking about. Don't want you to be ignorant about those who've died. And they're in Christ Jesus, as we'll see. They're believers who have died. This is interesting. This is a church, and it's quite amazing. This is a church that is less than a year old, and within that church, people who just came to faith have already passed away. You say, why is that interesting? Well, I find it interesting because they probably were elderly, and that Christ saved the older people, and they died. Praise the Lord. The reality is, those people who died, they were either elderly or sick or whatever it might be, they got saved within a year of their death. Isn't God gracious? Never give up on anyone that isn't saved. Keep praying. With man, it is impossible. With God, all things are possible. So these people had passed away within a year of their faith in Jesus Christ. Praise the Lord for that. They came to faith. So what does God say about death? Well, before that, I actually want to mention something else also that some people use this scripture and other scriptures like that to speak of what's called soul sleep. Uh, they, they say that the body and soul, basically, uh, that the soul sleeps, and you have it through with the cults, the Jehovah's Witnesses, the Seventh-day Adventists, who believe in this erroneous concept of soul sleep. And they use it to then manipulate the idea of God's judgment upon people eternally. This is not soul sleep, as we're going to see, because the soul goes immediately to be with the Lord. We're going to see that. So what does the Bible have to say about death? Psalm 146, verse 4. His spirit departs, he returns to the earth. We're going to see this, that when someone dies, their body is dead. It's lifeless. The soul and spirit has separated from the body. It is separated. Turn to Luke chapter 16. This is one of the best portions we can have concerning what happens when someone dies and if you don't know christ today read it very carefully think about it very carefully because if if uh, you die today this is what will happen to you luke chapter 16 verse 19 now there was a certain rich man and he habitually dressed in purple fine linen gaily living in splendor every day This is a guy who lived for this world, lived for this life. The implication is he didn't have a relationship with the Lord. And a certain poor man, and he has a name because the Lord knows him, his name is Lazarus, was laid at the gate covered with sores and longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. Besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. Now it came about that the poor man did what? Died. Died. And he was what? Carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. That's a figurative uh, place for, for, as we're going to see, paradise. And the rich man also died in what does it say? He was what? Buried. Buried. That's the body. And in Hades, that's a place of temporal torment before the final judgment and then hell, And in Hades, this is the rich man, he lifted up his eyes. He is conscious and aware immediately, being in torment. And he saw Abraham away and Lazarus in his bosom. 
The reality is Lazarus, a believer, was immediately brought into the presence of God and he was being comforted. For the rich man, the unbeliever, his body went in the grave and his soul went immediately to Hades. And again, Hades is a place of temporal torment until the final judgment and afterwards one would be thrown into the lake of fire. So he was conscious If you die today, you will be conscious, either in the presence of the Lord or in the presence of temporal torment. And it's interesting, this rich man understands about Lazarus. He even points to him. He remembers him. You might even remember what I tell you today, and I pray that's not the case if you're in the fire and you remember what I told you today. Listen and respond. He goes on, and he cried out and said, Father Abraham, that's the the rich man, have mercy on me, send Lazarus, that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember during, that during your life you received good things and likewise Lazarus bad things, and now he is being comforted and you are in agony? And besides all this, between us there is a great chasm fixed in order that those who wish to come over from here to you may not be able and, those, and that none may cross over from there to us. And he said, then I beg you, Father, that you send him to my father's house. He's going to send him to warn him about this place. For I have five brothers, that he may warn them, lest they also come to this place of torment. That's where you go if you reject Jesus, by the way. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. That's the word of God, by the way. Let them hear them. But he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will what? repent he understood what it was you see you need to repent of your sins you need to recognize you're a sinner and turn to god from sin for salvation but he said to them if they do not listen to moses and the prophets neither will neither will they be persuaded if one rises from the dead we have the reality that if you die today your soul will leave your body your body will be left behind for whatever reason whatever they do with it whether they burn it Throw it in the trash, whatever. That's what some people do in some areas of this kind of the world. Whatever they do with the body, or have a funeral, bury it, whatever it is, but your soul will immediately go into torment if you are a non-believer. And if you are a believer, it will immediately go into paradise, in a sense, with the Lord. What did Jesus say to the thief on the cross? There's no soul sleep, by the way. Today, you will be with me in paradise. Today, Luke twenty three forty three. no soul sleep. That's a lie from the pit of hell. What did the Apostle Paul say about this in Philippians chapter 1? Turn to Philippians chapter 1, verse 21. He said, For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will, be mean, mean, meanful, will mean fruitful labor for me. And I do not know which to choose, but I am hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ. Paul understood if he died, his soul would depart and be with Christ. We see the same thing in 2, Thessalonians, or 2 Corinthians chapter 5, where Paul says, I'd rather prefer to be preferred absent from the body and present with the Lord. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 8. So then, if you are a believer, your body stays here on earth. It stays here. It's left behind, in a sense. We'll see that in a minute. And then, your soul goes into the presence of the Lord. So with that in mind, we see what happens. So with the spirit gone, for believers, the death of the body is nothing more than a period of inactivity. It's like sleep. It's like sleep for the believer. And thus the euphemism of sleep. Think about it. When your loved one goes to sleep, you don't run to the phone and call 911 because you know they're going to wake up. There's a difference when a believer dies. You know, at least physically, they're going to rise and you know that they are with the Lord. You know that they're with the Lord. So Paul did not desire them to become ignorant concerning those who had fallen asleep in Christ. Back to our passage. But we do not want you to be uninformed, First Thessalonians 
4.13 about those who are asleep. And here's the purpose, the purpose of being informed, that you may not grieve as the rest who have no hope. And here's the issue confronting these Thessalonians. They were waiting for Christ Jesus to come. They believed he could come at any moment, which he can. And they had loved ones in Christ within that first year of faith who passed away. And they're thinking, they missed it. And they're grieving as though they will never see them again. Like those in the world who have no hope. And he's saying, we do not want you to be ignorant so that you are like the world, grieving with no hope. So then, these Thessalonians were obviously distraught about them. Other loved ones in Christ. That's a horrible thing, isn't it? And God is using his word to help them so that they would not be like the rest. That's non-believers. You see, non-believers are never going to see their loved ones again if they, stay in, if, they, if they didn't come to faith. They're going to be separated from God and from each other in black darkness and eternal torment forever. They may not know those facts or believe those facts, but what they do understand is when a loved one is gone, they really have no hope, and they grieve that way. When I first started pastoring a church in California, it was within the first month or two of being there, a lady came to me and asked me if I would do a funeral for her 16-year-old son who had blown his brains out. And I told her there's no way I could share that he was with the Lord because I knew he wasn't. And she acknowledged that. But I said I would share that he was created in God's image and therefore valuable, and I would read just the Lord Jesus' words that they might hear the gospel from his mouth and be saved. And if you looked at the people at that funeral, they had no hope. They had no hope. But I've also been blessed to do funerals for those who knew the Lord, and it's quite a different place. It's quite a different place. So then... It is not my desire, Paul says, that you are ignorant about believers who have died so that you would not grieve like those who have no hope. Their grief, their discouragement, depression, hopelessness, whatever it was, was based on ignorance of biblical truth. And that's the same for us in all different areas. If we are willingly ignorant or just ignorant of biblical truth, we will become hopeless in certain situations, whatever it might be. Whatever is going on right now, we can look at this world and become hopeless. But the reality is, if we understand what God says then we won't be hopeless. We are not to live in this world in the context of hopelessness. The world is in bondage to ignorance and unbelief. We are not. Don't run off and get a self-centered patch for your hopelessness, a counselor, a pill, whatever it is. Confess and run to the wonderful counselor and allow his truth to renew your heart and mind so that you will have genuine hope. Now notice the basis of our hope is not just simply uh, some pie in the sky thing. It is based on the reality of what Christ has done. Verse 14, 4, he's explaining, If we believe that Jesus died and rose from the, again, even so God will bring back with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. This is the basic statement that says, Hey, you don't need to grieve like them because this is going to happen. Then he's going to explain the specifics afterwards in verses 14 to 17. 4, he's explaining... If we believe, this is the condition for true, genuine hope, by the way. This is the condition. If we believe, continually, habitually, that Jesus, that's God who took on human flesh, you shall name him Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. The Lord is salvation. God took on human flesh. If we believe that Jesus died for our sins and he rose again, if we believe the truth of Jesus, then guess what? God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep with Jesus. He's coming. We believe that. But my loved ones died. What's happening with them? What's happening with them? Well, if we believe that Jesus died and rose from the dead, when he comes, he's going to bring them with him. That's what he's saying. That's the answer. He could stop right here and they would should be okay, but he's going to explain even more for our benefit. Even more for our benefit. Folks, the basis for our eternal hope is Christ. It is Christ. Christ alone. Christ in us, the hope of glory. The hope of glory. 
So then, he says, they will bring those who have fallen asleep. He'll bring them. Now he's speaking of what we call and what we see here and we'll see in verse 15, the coming of the Lord. He's speaking of the coming of the Lord. The coming of the Lord. You see that in verse 15. God will be will bring back with Jesus those who have fallen asleep. Now we need to address this term, coming of the Lord, because... There's a lot of confusion concerning this term, coming of the Lord. And there are those who would teach doctrines that actually are twisting the word of God by taking this phrase and then superimposing a meaning on it, which it isn't. You might remember the Apostle Paul in our letter has already spoken of the coming of the Lord already. Chapter, one verse, or chapter 2, verse 19. For who is our hope, our joy, our crown of exaltation? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming? Chapter 3, verse 11. Now may our God and Father himself and Jesus our Lord direct your way, direct our way to you, and may our Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all men, just as we also do for you, that he may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before our God and Father in the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. He's talked about the coming of the Lord in general already. So what is this coming of the Lord? There are two specific possibilities. It could be rightly speaking of the coming of the Lord, his second coming. Jesus Christ came once, he came to earth, he took on human flesh, he lived the perfect life, he died, he rose from death, and he ascended to heaven. And he is coming back again. He will plant his feet on this earth and he will establish his kingdom. That's the second coming of Christ. Or it could speak of what we're going to see or what we call the rapture of the church. Now, I don't have enough time this week to go through a order of end time events. We'll plan to do that next week. I'll probably have it on your outline. But I just want to address the question from these verses 14 to 17. Well, who, which coming is this? Because there are those who say this is the second coming of Christ. Now, I'm absolutely confident it is not speaking of that. And I will share why here from the word. I believe it's not speaking of the second coming of Christ, which in which that coming every eye will see, and he will come in glory. He will plant, Jesus will plant his feet on the Mount of Olives. He will slay his enemies. He will slave all Israel of that time. He will establish his millennial kingdom. That's the second coming. And when he comes, he stays here on earth for that kingdom. Okay? I believe our, the evidence in other passages and our passage specifically will share that this is what we call the rapture of the church. And you say, how can I say that? Well, first of all, those who say this is the second coming, their biggest argument is the word coming here. It's called in Greek parousia. And they take that and say, well, if he uses that term, it must speak of the second coming. But that word can be parousia, quote-unquote, or just parousia, coming. We use that word in general. It's a general word for someone coming. For a personal arrival. That's all it means. So because the same word is used somewhere else does not automatically mean that it's the same meaning. Context determines the meaning of words. And this term coming actually characterizes an action, not an event by itself. By itself. The action of coming. So it's important that we recognize you can't take one meaning from another passage and force it in unless the context actually shows that that's the meaning. But what we're going to see here in a moment is that this actually points to an event in which Jesus doesn't come to earth. He comes to the air, the clouds as we'll see, and he forcibly grabs believers up to meet him, and then we all are with him back in heaven. This was read earlier, and this is very consistent with the book of John. Turn to John 14. John 14. We'll get into our passage because it's really clear from our passage, but let's look at some other passages that support this fact that this is speaking of the Lord's coming to grab his church. John 14. Jesus has already told his disciples he's going, but he's going to try to encourage them. I'm going to leave you the comforter. But he's first going to explain. He's going to explain. Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. Where's his Father's house? That's where he's going. It's heaven. It's heaven. Get that. 
If it were not so, I would not have told you. For I go, he's leaving to prepare a place. Where? In his father's house, in heaven. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. He comes to get us, to take us back. It's like going to get, it's like you got a child somewhere and you're, and you're, you're gonna go get them to bring them home. You don't go in the house, you beep the horn and they come in the car and you leave, right? He's coming to get us. In the second coming of Christ, Jesus stays on earth. Yet he is going to come for his church beforehand. And we see in the scriptures many paradigms in which believers are taken away before judgment happens. Scripture reveals this paradigm very clearly. We see this with Enoch who walked with God and he was taken away before the flood judgment. Jesus makes this point in Matthew 24 and 27 about Lot and Noah being delivered before judgment came. 1 Thessalonians supports this same truth. Indeed, these Thessalonians were waiting for Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. That's the tribulation. That's his wrath poured out on this earth. Chapter 5, verse 9, 1 Thessalonians, God has not destined us for wrath. That's not our destiny to go through his wrath upon this world. It's not our destiny. So all those circumstantial passages point to the reality that this is not the second coming. But more importantly, our passage itself shows it very clearly. This is not the second coming, but God's coming for his church. Back to our passage. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, verse 14, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. And now he's going to explain He's going to give some details. Verse 15, 4. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord. He's going to strengthen it. Apostle Paul is an apostle. What he says is God's word, but he's going to make it clear. This is not my thinking. This is not anything. This is the word of the Lord. This is really what's going to happen. It is authoritative. It is authoritative. And on a side note, the obvious application for us is do not get your end times scenarios from a person who has a Bible in one hand and a newspaper in the other. Don't look for tantalizing fulfillments of prophecy by TBN hucksters or, or whoever it might be. Get it from the authoritative word of God. He says, for this we say to you by the word of the Lord. And what does he say? That we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord shall not precede those who have fallen asleep or died in Christ. That's the context. Don't worry, Thessalonians. Your loved ones who have fallen asleep, they've died. They will be first. They will be first. Here's the order. And this phrase, we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord, speaks of everyone who will be alive when Christ comes. And it would have spoken of everyone at that time who was alive if he had come back at that time. Whoever is alive when Jesus returns for his church is who this is speaking of. We who are alive and remain. The rest are those who have died. You see, if Jesus doesn't come in our lifetime, we will be with that group that has fallen asleep. But if he comes during our lifetime, we will be in this other group, we who are alive and remain. And I found this really interesting when I was studying this because all those movies talk about left behind and all this stuff, you know, they talk about the rapture. Well, this word remain speaks, it literally means left behind. But it's not speaking of the non-believers, it's speaking of us. Guess what? Jesus left us behind and went to heaven. But he's coming back. We are alive and we remain here. Those who are alive and were left behind, are Jesus is going to come for them. You see? Isn't that interesting? Those who are alive or left behind until the coming of the Lord. We've been left behind until he comes, by the way. Our bodies will be left behind in the grave also until he comes. July remain until the coming shall not precede those who have fallen asleep. There's an order. Those who have died, they're first. They're first. Then those who are alive remain. He's going to grab them too, as we're going to see. Shall not precede those who have fallen asleep. And notice he gives some specific details. Verse 16. For the Lord himself, very emphatic, the Lord himself will descend from heaven 
with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God. Great grammatical emphasis. The Lord himself. Personal return. The Lord himself will descend from heaven. Jesus is currently at the right hand of the Father, preparing a place for us. We were left behind here. But he's coming back for us. He's coming back. Think about that. We're aliens and sojourners here. This is not our, not our home. Don't get comfortable. This is not our home. He's coming back. He's going to take us home. We have a better home in heaven. We have a better one. So notice here, he is currently at the right of the Father, but he will descend from heaven. Remember, we won't be left behind for long in light of eternity. And now where does he descend to? The context, middle of verse 17, is not to earth, but in the clouds in the air. He descends down to our atmosphere, basically, in the clouds in the air. That's where he descends. This is not speaking of the second coming where Jesus comes and plants his feet on the Mount of Olives. Zechariah 14, Matthew 24, Revelation 19. That's his coming in judgment and purging and bringing salvation of Israel. Okay, so what does it say about his descent? Notice what it says here. It's going to happen with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet of God. Three things. Now, the preposition here, with, could be translated in or within this sphere. When he comes, it's going to be within the sphere of these three things. The first one, a shout. Now, it's not simply just a shout. This word literally means a shout of a command. It was used to describe the cry of shipmasters with their rowers, military officers with their soldiers, and a, or a hunter calling out for the hounds or the charioteer, charioteer with his chariots or horses. It's a shout of a command. Very interesting. And the voice of the archangel speaks of either the actual voice of the archangel, the highest archangel, Michael, or a voice resembling the voice of an archangel. It could be like that. It's possible. And the trumpet of God is God's trumpet. He's the one bringing this sound. What's the point? This is very significant. Very significant. Jesus is leaving heaven to resurrect the dead, as we'll see, to join them with their spirits and bring home those who are alive and remain. This is a significant event. So what happens? End of verse 16. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Wait a second. You told me that the dead were already with Jesus. Well, yes, absent from the body, present with the Lord, but they're with him, as we'll see, but their bodies that are lifeless and not inhabited by anything anymore will rise and they will be reunited with their bodies and glorified. They're first. You want to know what's happening to your loved ones? They're first. They're first when Jesus comes. They're the priority. Those who have fallen asleep, they are the priority in this. And it's interesting with the voice or a shouted command. Think about that. Do you remember when Jesus uh, cried out with a loud voice? It says with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. Isn't that amazing? So then they're going to be resurrected. Their bodies are going to be resurrected. A loud command. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 35. We can't read all of this, but we're going to read some of it. 1 Corinthians 15, 35. But some will say, how are the dead raised? This is speaking of what's going to happen that day, by the way. And with what kind of body do they come? What's, what's going to happen? He says, Paul says, you fool. He says, that which you show does not come to lo- so does not come to life unless it dies. And that which you, and that which you sow, you do not sow, you do not sow the body which is to be. But a bare grain, perhaps of wheat or of something else. But God gives it a body just as He has wished, and each one the seeds, the seeds, each, excuse me, each of the seeds of a body of its own. All flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one flesh of men, another flesh of beasts, another flesh of birds, another flesh of fish. There are also heavenly bodies and earthly bodies. But the glory of the heavenly one and the glory of the earthly is another. 
There is one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon and another glory of the stars. For The stars differ from star in glory. So also in the resurrection of the dead, it is sown a perishable body. That's the seed in a sense. It's a perishable, decaying body. It is raised imperishable, no decay. It is sown in dishonor. It's because of sin, right? It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. We know that, don't we? It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So also, so also it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living soul. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, then the spiritual. So also, as it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living soul. The last man, the last Adam, became a life-giving spirit. That's speaking of Christ. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, then the spiritual. The first is from earth, earthly. The second man is from heaven. And is, and is the earthly so also, as is the earthly, so also is those who are earthly. And as is the heavenly, so also are those who are heavenly. And just as we have borne the image of the earthly, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly. This is quite amazing. We're going to be like Christ, not in deity, but in his glory, in his glorified body. It's going to be very amazing. The first Adam, and then we have the second Adam, Christ, who was glorified. We're not going to be God and man. We'll be glorified man. Christ is eternally God and man, but we will be glorified. We'll be glorified. Tremendous reality. Tremendous reality. So then... His coming will be encompassed by a shouted command, the voice of the archangel, the trumpet of God. The dead in Christ will rise first. Bodies will come out of the grave, and they're going to be reunited with their souls. The dead in Christ, those of us who have died, our bodies will be resurrected if we've died and reunited with our souls, not an earthly body sown in dishonor and wickedness and sin, but a spiritual body that's glorified. Quite amazing. The Lord God will finish the job. We will not remain unclothed. We will be resurrected also. That's what's going to happen to those who have died. They're first. They're first. So here's a summary. For those who have passed away, when the Lord descends, God will bring with him the spirits of those who died in Jesus, because they're with him forever, and the dead bodies will rise first. The bodies will meet their spirits, and they'll be changed. They're glorified given glorified, sinless bodies built for eternity, immorality, in, not immorality, no immorality, but immortality, immortality. But what about the rest of us that are hanging out when this happens, that are, have been left behind for a time, alive and left behind? Then we, verse 17, who are alive and have been left behind, remain, shall be caught up together with them in the clouds, to meet the Lord, not on earth, but in the air. This is key. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. You see, if this is the second coming of Christ, then Christ would come, we'd come to meet him, then he would all come back down. No, that's not it. We're going back to a place in which he prepared for us in heaven. Those who are alive and remain, obviously believers who have not died when Christ comes. He's speaking of brethren. Now this word caught up speaks, it comes from the Greek word harpazo, and the Latin translation is where we get our word rapture. Someone says, oh, the rapture is not in the Bible. They're, they're correct, but harpazo is, and that's what that comes from. This term means to snatch up, to seize forcefully, to carry off. In the parable of the sower, Jesus uses it to speak of the evil one who snatches away the word from those who don't believe. He also uses this word to speak that no one can snatch out of the Father's hand us, his children. Paul spoke of this word in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 when he was caught up to the third heaven. He was snatched away to the third heaven. It's a forceful grabbing. So then, this is marvelous. Jesus comes back with the spirits of those who have died in Christ 
Their bodies are raised and reunited with their spirits, glorified bodies. Then he forcibly grabs us from earth, snatches us up, and we go to the clouds. I like flying, but this is going to be glorious, right? No airplane. It's going to happen. So then, this forceful snatching of believers we call the rapture. And notice they're snatched up from by Jesus in the air, in the clouds. That's this right here, above us. And folks, this is where we who are snatched up are also glorified also. If you're alive and remain, Scripture says it's a mystery, but we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. Turn to Philippians first, Philippians 3, and then we'll turn to 1 Corinthians 15 again. For those of us who are alive and remain, we're going to be glorified too. We're going to be changed. Philippians 3, verse 20. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We're waiting for him to come, right? And what's he going to do? Who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory. This is quite amazing. By the exertion of power that he has even to subject all things to himself. Jesus is going to conform us to his glory. We're going to be changed. Don't try to fix up this body now. It's dying. It's going away. Be a good steward, yes, but this is the body of sin. He's going to, we're going to be glorified. We're going to be glorified. The world has nothing left, so they spend all their focus on, on that. Not us. Turn to 1 Corinthians 15.50. Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Hey, this dead body of sin needs to be dealt with. Needs to be dealt with. Our spirits have been redeemed, but the process isn't done yet. We haven't been redeemed our bodies yet, but it's going to come. Behold, verse 51, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, that means die, but we shall all be changed. We're all going to be changed. Okay? In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, that's the last trumpet for us as believers, by the way, the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. That's what we just talked about. For this perishable, this, this body subject to death, sin, death, and decay must put on the imperishable. The mortal, subject to death, must put on immortality. But when this happens, when the perishable has put on imperishable, and the mortal has put on immortality, when this happens, then will come about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Victory, right? Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Hey, death didn't do it. Jesus took care of it. The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have victory over death. And this is the day that that victory is consummated when we are glorified. Shouldn't be grieving over those who have fallen asleep because glory is coming and they're going to be first. Notice back what he says here, back in our passage. He says, then, verse 17, we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them. That's those who have fallen asleep. Where? In the clouds. To meet the Lord. That's awesome. In the air, and thus we shall be with the Lord. Always, thus we shall always be with the Lord. Again, if you, I'm a pilot, so I'll say this. If you don't like flying, there's going to be a time when you will. <laughs> we will have a lot of flying in our future. What a mind-blowing event. Call it the rapture, call it harpazo, call it the forcibly grabbing event, whatever you want to say. It's going to be awesome. It's going to be awesome. We are going to be reunited with every loved one who has died in Christ. Praise God. We don't grieve like those who have no hope because we're going to see him again. And guess what? We're going to beat the Lord in the air. We're going to meet him in the air. We have not met Jesus personally. We have believed in him. We walk by faith and not by sight. 
We have a relationship with him, but we have not been in his presence. We will meet him in the air. We'll see him face to face. And then we'll be with him forever. And thus we shall always be personally with the Lord. We're not with him right now. We have his spirit in us, but we are not with him. We've been left behind. But he's preparing a place for us because he's going to come get us. He's going to get us. And if we've died, he's going to resurrect us. And if we're alive, he's going to change us also. Remember John 14? And if I go, I will prepare a place for you that I come again. I will receive you to myself that where I am, you may be also. Don't let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe in Jesus. The night of temptation and sin will be done. Faith will have become sight. With this truth, there is no reason to be hopeless. Only the encouragement to excel still more in hope. It's, it's, I'm almost speechless to think about this event. How can we grieve like those who have no hope when we know what's going to happen? Don't be ignorant. I pray that we will excel still more in hope. We haven't thought enough about this, I believe. That's my thought. Our future is incredible, and it's going to happen. But there are some applications for us in that that we need to be aware of. Because Jesus is coming, we need to then have a mindset of what's going to happen, and that should motivate us to, to holiness. Look at 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2. Verse 28. And now, little children, abide in him so that when he appears, remain, trust in Jesus, rely on him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. I don't want to be in sin when he comes. Keep short accounts with God. We are going to fail, but confess he's a gracious God. Walk with the Lord. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone also who also who practices righteousness is born of him. See how great a love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called children of God, and such we are. For this reason the world does not know us because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are children of God. It has not yet appeared what we shall be. That's what we saw, right? We know that when he appears... We shall be like him, because we shall see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. You see, this is a motivation to stop sinning and to confess and be right with the Lord. Stop bad attitudes. Stop worrying. Stop fearing. Trust the Lord. What a great future we have. And secondly, there is an encouragement also. In the end of First uh, Corinthians 50, 15, it talks about thanks be to God that we have the victory through Christ. What I read a little minute ago, when we're glorified, that when that day comes, the saying will come about, death, where's your sting? But if, and it all came through Christ. But he says one more thing after this for us who are left behind. He says, therefore, First Corinthians fifteen fifty eight, my beloved brethren, be steadfast immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. Keep serving the Lord until that day. Your toil is not in vain. And then the last application is the direct application for these Thessalonians and for us. Look at verse 18. We'll finish. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. We're going to be with Jesus forever. We're going to be with those who have fallen asleep with Jesus in Jesus forever. Comfort. Yes, we grieve temporarily over those who have passed away, but it's not like the world. We have hope. We know that we will see them again. We know because of Jesus we will see them again. So are you excelling in hope? Are you excelling in the truth that God has revealed? The Lord wants us to. When you're tempted to become hopeless looking at this horrible circumstances of this life and this world, get your eyes on Jesus and what he has promised. 
see those things through the glory of what he is going to do for us. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I thank you so much for this truth. It is so wonderful. And Lord, forgive us for forgetting so often. Lord, help us to be those who have this hope fixed on your Son, who are aware of what's truly going to happen, who see this world as a temporal place, recognizing we've been left behind for a time to serve you, to toil for you, but you will come and get us. Whether it's uh, us passing away and going your presence and then being resurrected, or whether it is personally calling out to us. And Lord, I just thank you for this truth. And I ask you to permeate our hearts with it, that we would be those who respond by enduring in our serving and desiring to be more and more like your son, Jesus. Thank you that we have this assurance from your word that is absolute. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen.